Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon producing. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show takes Hemingway at his own premise. We ask our guest a very simple question, his choice for Hemingway's one true sentence, and then, as Hemingway writes, we go on from there. Today, we are very lucky to welcome Mark Kurlansky. Mark Kurlansky is the award-winning and New York Times bestselling author of 34 books of fiction, nonfiction children's books, young adult books, and one classic French translation. His books include Cod, Salt, Paper, The Basque History of the World, 1968, Salmon, The Big Oyster, and International Night, among many others. He has been a foreign correspondent for the International Tribune, the Chicago Tribune, and other newspapers in Europe, Mexico, and the Caribbean. Today, Mark is with us to celebrate his new book called The Importance of Not Being Earnest, My Life with the Uninvited Hemingway. Mark Kurlansky, welcome to One True Podcast. Thank you. Nice to be talking to you. It's great to have you with us. Mark Kurlansky, what is your one true sentence and why? Okay, here it is. In the fall, the war was always there, but we did not go to it anymore. Ah, so what strikes you about that sentence from in another country? Several things. First of all, what it says about war. And this is something that is very underappreciated about Hemingway is that uh, he was very anti-war. And the fir his first fan base was his generation. He really spoke to his generation who had been through World War I and was really disgusted by war. So this, this opens, the war is there. We don't go to it anymore. And, you know, so the first thing that comes to my mind is, yes, that's what we need to do is just not go to wars anymore. <laughs> but beyond that, um, I, on rare occasions, I find myself giving writing workshops. And I use this sentence to teach about opening lines. Well, one of Hemingway's greatest geniuses was short story writing. And you could go through a book of Hemingway short stories and read the opening line. They might not all be this great, but they all have great opening lines. And um, why is this a great opening line? Because it has so much in it in so few words. Yeah. Uh, first of all, it has that kind of unique sarcasm of Hemingway. And a good opening line should give you some answers and ask you lots of questions. And that's what this is. This, that's what this does. I mean, why aren't they going to the war anymore? Who are they? <laughs> and, and who has ever described 
war is going to the war the way you'd go to the theater or go to the supermarket, right? Exactly. So it's it's presenting the option. The war is there, but are you going to go to it? And a lot of his writing is about not going to the war. Yes. Frederick and Farewell to Arms. Separate piece, right? There's a great line in, uh, uh, might have used this, (laughs) great line in A Farewell to Arms Mm -hmm. where uh, Frederick asks Catherine, where do you think we'll be when this war finally ends? And she says, probably in old people's homes. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I want to quote your own uh, work back to you. You say the best opening line he ever wrote, one of the best in all literature, was the opening of In Another Country, a short story he published two years before A Farewell to Arms. It begins in the fall. The war was always there, but we di- didn't go to it anymore. Wasn't that the best thing to do with war? Just don't go to it. And as you detail in your book, you were faced with much the same decision that Hemingway was faced with as a young man. In fact, actually quite beautifully, you say Hemingway went to the war to avoid college. You went to college to avoid war. As your readers will of this book will discover, you kind of use Hemingway as a, a touchstone or a barometer all through your life. So how did Hemingway's approach to the war sort of reflect your own attitude? Well, it was a very big influence because I I happened to read, I didn't happen, I I had this thing when I was a kid, if there was a writer I liked, I wanted to read his entire body of work. I did this with uh, Hemingway, but also with Steinbeck and even with Dostoevsky. So I was making my way through Hemingway and I got to book number two, A Farewell to Arm. And this was... uh, this was at a time when I was starting to hear about this place, Vietnam. And my father and my uncle and all the men I knew were World War II veterans. And I was raised with this idea that, you know, when you come of age, there'll be a war waiting for you. And I recognized, oh, and it's going to be called Vietnam. And um, I, I read this book. I don't think that I have ever been more engrossed in, in reading than reading this book. I didn't fully appreciate it at the time. Later, as a journalist, I saw some more. And, you know, I mean, Hemingway really could describe war. Um, but he could also describe the destructiveness of war. So many of his novels and short stories are about people destroyed by war. And I saw people destroyed by war. I saw a number. I uh, saw people destroyed by World War II, and I saw people destroyed by Vietnam. Uh, I understood that uh, this is what war does. Mark, do you find in Hemingway that over the course of his life and over the course of his career, his attitude about war changed from, let's say, 1918 to the 50s? You know... I don't think so. What changed was how he presented himself in public. But if you stick with his writing, his attitude, I mean, when he was in the, the height of the Hemingway macho soldier, he was never a soldier, but he pretended that he was. He's sick to his writing and he's writing about how war is a crime and it's unforgivable. And uh, he, he never stopped saying those things. I don't think his attitude changed at all. His attitude towards what kind of public image he wanted changed. And I wonder, you know, I don't really know about this, and it hasn't been explored much, but I wonder how much Hemingway 
try to garner himself for his public. So his generation, the World War I generation, uh, he was perfect for with his anti-war message. Uh, anti-war messages were not that popular with the World War II generation, although certainly there was plenty of reason for it. Um, you know, maybe he deliberately changed his image to grab those people, to grab that other generation. But he didn't change his thinking at all, mm -hmm. I don't think. And it's interesting that you're making a distinction between World War II and Vietnam. One of the main thrusts of your book is the extent to which Hemingway was an influence on you, uh, in, se in some cases an accidental or inescapable influence on you. Mostly. It wasn't, it wasn't something I ever Thought. Right. And so I'll, I'd like to talk about that in greater specificity. But can you say that I, about what Hemingway might have meant to the World War II writers versus what he meant to the Vietnam writers? Well, you know, he, he wasn't around for Vietnam. But looking at his points of view and um, the things he was writing and who he was, I'm pretty sure he would have opposed the Vietnam War. Um, and, uh, you know, this is why the FBI didn't like the guy. He had all these unsavory leftist points of view. And so I think the Vietnam, I'm the Vietnam generation and, and uh, you know, he speaks to me. It's that middle generation, the, the, the World War II generation. Now, I'm sure he really spoke to a lot of World War II veterans. You know, one of the interesting things about war is that, that veterans are not nearly as enthusiastic about it as everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, and for my for my generation, Hemingway, if you separated that, that Hemingway the writer from Hemingway the personality, Hemingway the personality yeah. got kind of ridiculous from the point of view of of my generation. I mean, just his marriages, the way he treated his wives, all, all of this macho garbage um but it's not really who he was mm -hmm. and, and then he used to complain sometimes he'd say people don't really know me and i wish i was there i'd say whose fault is that Hem? exactly yeah. yeah he was his own worst uh enemy when it came to really? when it came to things like this uh in in your in your explanation it, it reminds me that uh, it, it always seems like hemingway is clear about the difference between how he presents soldiers and how he presents, let's say, politicians or generals, sort of feckless generals, maybe the, sort of there's the, there's the mechanics of warfare and international relations. But, there, but the, he always seems to have his eye on the dignity of soldiering. I mean, do you think well, we can make that distinction? Yes. And also, you know, there's a line in this story in another country. Hmm. Uh, in which he says, you know, the people, it ends up being a story about wounded uh, soldiers. And they said the people, you know, in the town of Milan, um, they couldn't really understand us. And this is something that veterans always feel. You know, if you haven't, if you haven't been through it, you'll never understand it. He 
had very little limited war experience. He had one week distributing chocolate bars on a bicycle before he was hit by a mortar, and that's it. Um, but he was an extremely observant person, and he understood combat veterans. And one of the things he understood very well about them is that they were they they felt apart that other people just didn't understand them. You know, you yeah. see it in um, the sun also rises. Nobody really understands no. Jake Barnes. You also, in your book, you make reference to his introduction to Men at War, which is the 1942 yep. war writing anthology that he, he edited. And do you take that as a an anti-war statement, sort of his general philosophy about waging war? Yes. Yes, I do. And he he said about this book, that, you know, he went to war thinking it was a great thing and he was doing this book so his sons, who were probably going to be going to war, would understand that it's not. And so it wasn't necessarily on brand for him to come out as somebody highly skeptical about war when that had been his bread and butter. Right. I mean, when you say brand, brand being something artificial that you create. Exactly. It, it, it was him. It wasn't his brand. <laughs> But he kept coming back to it. You know, this was a guy who, I'm not sure for how long, maybe all his life, would have nightmares from that trench yeah. mortar and, and wake up in cold shivers. And and um, I knew people like that from Vietnam. And uh, you don't really, it's, it's just always there with you. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I are huge fans of the Hemingway Review. We always read it to see the latest scholarship. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org backslash journals. Getting back to what we were saying about the notion of influence, you in your book, you kind of turn the common notion of influence on its head because you're saying that you are not seeking Hemingway. You don't, you're not going around to all of his haunts. It's almost like he is going to you. It's like he is pursuing you. Oh, God, you're here. <laughs> Your subtitle is My Life with the Uninvited Hemingway, right? Um, so I'd love for you to talk about that. And maybe you could even start with where you were when Hemingway committed suicide. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the first of many Hemingway coincidences. I was in Idaho. I'm not sure if I was in central Idaho in Ketchum, but I was, my, my family used to, you know, we had this big Buick. We were a family of six, and we'd pack in every summer and drive around the country. And we were in Idaho uh, when he killed himself. And the newspapers said it was an accident. And my father said, accident, my foot. <laughs> and I got very angry with him. It was an accident. Of course it was an accident, because I grew up wanting to be a writer, and Hemingway had the ultimate writing life. And why would somebody who had the ultimate writing life kill themselves? That was a question I worked out later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but and so and you end up in as you detail in your book, you I mean you go to Paris, you go to Spain, Basque Country, and you go over Hemingway's tracks. But it had almost nothing to do with Hemingway. Right. Maybe Paris did. 
because in the early 1970s, when I moved to Paris, this idea of the lost generation and Hemingway in Paris was very much in people's minds because A Movable Feast had come out and Carlos Baker's book had come out and a Hotchner's book had come out. And I never said this, but it might have been in the back of my mind that, you know, Paris would be a good place for a writer to get started. It wasn't. And I quickly saw that. And I quickly saw that my Paris was nothing like Hemingway's Paris. Hemingway had a much better Paris, you know. <laughs> uh, for one thing, the uh, dollar was very strong when Hemingway's was in Paris. Hem Hemingway's Paris was so cheap, you know, just a minimal budget you could just live great. But you spent a long time in Paris, didn't you? Ten years, ten years. Longer than Hemingway. Yes, actually, I just spent more time than Hemingway. You know, it wasn't about Hemingway, other than people kept making it about. I mean, when I when I explained to a French person that I was a writer and I was living in Paris, they would always say, "Ah, uh, Monsieur Hemingway." <laughs> <laughs> Is there a danger to having sort of the specter oh, yeah. of Hemingway over you as a young writer? Well, I saw that when I was in Paris. There were all of these young writers there. And, you know, they were all completely obsessed with Hemingway. And as I say in my book, when Hemingway was in Paris, the writers were trying to create a new literature. There was this incredible new modernist movement. When I was in Paris, the writers were trying to recreate an old movement. Yeah, right. Uh, didn't, didn't really work. It was uh, uh, one of the things I learned from Paris, I probably would have known this anyway, is that the worst thing that can happen to you as a writer is to be, you know, infatuated with Hemingway. Mm. Obviously, a show like this, we're devoted to the one true sentence. And you say something, and pardon me if I'm paraphrasing, but you say that when you approach your articles in uh, when you're working as a journalist, you say something like, I have found all I have to do is come up with a good lead. And then the rest of the piece takes care of itself. Is that your sort of journalistic version of the one true sentence? How does Hemingway's idea of the one true sentence apply to your approach to writing? It's also in, I've also do this in books and in novels and definitely in short stories. Yeah, you get that sentence. I mean, when I was a, when I was a journalist, you know, so you'd be riding around, you got to get, back to the hotel by five o'clock to file your story. And I'd be thinking and thinking and thinking about that lead. And when the lead popped into my head, I'd say, okay, that's it. And I'd rush back to the hotel and write the story. Because you were saying that you have a particular interest in how Hemingway begins stories, right? His opening lines and in, in stories. They're always great, great openers. You know, the, the, the greatest mastery of Hemingway was his short stories. And the thing, I, I love short stories. I've done three collections of short stories myself. And one of the great things about short stories is that they're small enough yeah. so that you can make them perfect. Yeah. You never can really write a perfect novel. Yeah, I noticed just in the, looking at the beginning of In Another Country, he says, in the fall, the war was always there, but we did not go to it anymore. The next sentence, it was cold in the fall in Milan and the dark came very early. And then he goes through the paragraph. And then the last sentence in that paragraph is, it was a cold fall and the wind came down from the mountains. It's almost like that 
opening paragraph is 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 a self-contained entity. It's unbelievable. Who else would write like that? Yeah, I mean, he 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 makes that opening statement, and then he gives you a description. He sets the scene, and you're you're just set to go. Why weren't they going to the war? Who were they? Right, and in in another in another country is the also in many ways the theme to your book, right? Um, that you go to you go to Spain and also Cuba were central uh, aspects of your experience that also seem to overlap with Hemingway. Maybe we can actually end on by just addressing Cuba. Did you find you say Paris was was your Paris was far different? was far different from Hemingway's. How about your Cuba versus Hemingway's Cuba? Well, first of all, my Spain was like his. When I went to yeah. Spain, it was still a fascist dictator. Franco was in power. Yes. I went to the Cuba that he left. Right. And I, Hemingway was far from my mind when I was going to Cuba. I mean, I was interested in the revolution and the great social experiments that they were doing and just what was going on with the Cuban revolution, which had nothing to do with Hemingway. I think I was there about two or three days. I mean, what the Cuban government did with journalists is they assigned you somebody, a very pleasant person usually. And about the second or third day, apropos of nothing, because they were always trying to get you to do things that were not you know, about the revolution. They want, you want to go to the beach, <laughs> you know. So about the third day, they said, the guy said, want to go to Hemingway's house? <laughs> and there it was. Hemingway. There it is again, right? Right. Yeah, that's great. Uh, but uh, Hemingway still is, his presence is still profound in Cuba. I don't think the Cubans have accepted the fact that he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> so they have a life-size statue of him in his favorite spot at the Florida bar. And you can see him still there with his diary. They, they still don't sit in his seat, right? It's uh, Right. And, you know, know uh, I, I tell this story about how I was walking around one day and it happened to be Father's Day. And I'm wandering around in Havana and, and people are going, hola, papa. <laughs> And, and I thought, you know, that's one of the things about the closeness of Cuba to the U.S. is that they celebrate the American Father's Day on the same day. And I thought, oh, isn't that nice? They probably figured I was sort of missing my daughter on that day. And, you know, they probably figured out that I was a father. Isn't this nice? And, and then one of them, instead of saying, well, Papa called me Hemingway. And I suddenly realized what was going on when, when Hemingway was there, everybody used to call out, hola, papa, and he'd wave right. to terrible eyesight. He probably had no idea who he was waving to, but it was something people in Havana loved to do, and they still do it if they can find an American of more or less the same size. Yeah, with a beard, right? Mark Kurlansky, could you please uh, read your one true sentence one more time? With pleasure. In the fall, the war was always there, but we did not go to it anymore. Mark Kurlansky, author of The Importance of Not Being Earnest, My Life with the Uninvited Hemingway. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on One True Podcast. Great talking to you. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode and past episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Our book, One True Sentence, Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art, is available anywhere books are sold. So if you have someone in your life who loves books, and Hemingway, 
buy a copy or two, and spread the joy. You can also support this podcast by leaving us a rating and telling your friends all about us. Feel free to write us at onetruepod at gmail.com. That's the number one, truepod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. This show is supported by the Hemingway Society and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Oh,